Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. Blesses the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Thank you, Laura. You okay there, Mark? Nearly lost you down the back of the stage there. I've said good morning to everybody, but uh, we carry on in the book of James, and I suppose the question I want to ask you this morning is, what do you think the biggest test that you'll ever have will be? (laughs) Your wife is evidently not in the room. James might suggest otherwise, shall Rick Warren wrote a book that uh, I think uh, sold more than 50 million copies. It was called The Purpose Driven Life. It still is. And uh, he talks about three things that make up the human life if you are to be a follower of Jesus. He talks about the fact that life is a test, a trust, and a temporary assignment. Agree with him or not, I think that it's pretty close to the experience of human existence if you're to follow Jesus. It's a, it's a temporary assignment in that God gives you an allotted number of years that you get to live in his kingdom, in his world, and you get to do with it what you will. It's your choice. You get to either uh, take on the beauty of his grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're a person maybe who's looking in at the claims of Jesus, uh, the, 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 the call for humanity is to ask big questions of why am I here? What is this all about? To be able to explore and ask these questions for this short little uh, blips that I get on this planet It would be wise of me to ask the question, why am I here? What is this temporary assignment? He also says that life is a trust in that you have been given certain things that have been put into your hand to look after, to to utilize, whether it is your, uh, your talents, whether it is your time, whether it is your treasures. You've been given a whole bunch that you get to steward, to look after. It's a trust. No one else has those things. No one else has your body to live in. No one has your intellect. No one has your uh, mind and thoughts. It's been given to you to, to steward. And then, of course, the other one is a test. I think of Abraham, who most famously had the test where he's given his own son, and he's told to take him up a mountain, and, and he's given this test. Is, uh, is he able to trust God implicitly with the most valuable stuff in his life? I think it's a pretty good summation, whether you love or don't love the book. It's a fairly good summation of the human existence, a test, a trust, a temporary assignment, But what is one of the greatest tests that we might receive in our lives? James seems to suggest that it's the couple of pennies that land in our bank account each week or each month. Or the couple of pennies that don't land in our bank account for some of us, for some of our lives. He seems to suggest that wealth has this ability to really shape who we are, who we're becoming, 
and how it is that we express the most important stuff about our life. It's a test, and it's a trust, and he has not wasted any time. Uh, he evidently hasn't read any of these books about you know, influencing people and making friends because he is nine verses in and he's already talking about people's wallets and what they do with their money. And any good pastor knows that you don't go there that quickly. You take time, but James takes no time. He starts by saying, count it joy when you face trials. Then he teaches people to face trials again. And then he says, oh, let's talk about money. This guy is a skillful influencer. But that's the beauty, actually, of preaching line by line through the Bible. What it means is that we don't get the choice as pastors to go, oh, let's skip that one. We are going to go through James till we get to the end, and we are going to face the awesome and the awkward because we need to understand what is God saying to us. If we could put the text back up. Today, I suppose I want to speak to us about that test and that trust that God gives us in our finances. And I also want to speak to us not just about our finances, but often our lack of finances. There may be some in the room who you hear this term finances, and you're going, what I would do just to have a job, just to have a little bit of income. James does not talk to people who do or don't have income. He talks to, uh, he talks to everybody on every side of the spectrum in this passage. He is addressing us all, and he's saying, your money is a real test. It is a real test, whether you get lots of it or whether you get very little of it. The amount that you get will often be the test itself in terms of what's gonna happen in your heart. And uh, this week hasn't actually been that easy for me, to be honest, because in some ways I found myself grappling through this text and at times feeling uh, guilty on one sense because I feel like, oh, I could be doing better. And we all know that the enemy is an accuser, so he tries to get in your head and you're looking at money and one day you wake up and you go, oh, I wish I was more generous. And the enemy jumps on and goes, yeah, you're not that generous. And then the next day you feel like, you know, you wish you didn't, and it, it just can get quite in your face. And we'll talk about that because we're often... Because of our frustration or our guilt, we just go, let's not talk about this. Let's, let's close the chapter. Let's not talk about the difficulties or the realities of our wealth or our lack of wealth. But James masterfully goes there. He wants to give us wisdom. So let's try to absorb all the wisdom that he has. And so he starts by saying, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Other translations say, let him rejoice in his exaltation. I.e., and lowly essentially is the word poor. He's talking about a person who has little material possession, who doesn't own much, who doesn't get a big income, or maybe doesn't get an income at all. And it seems most commentators will say that he's writing to these churches who are kind of middle-class churches who are hoping to grow in their wealth. Sound familiar? Uh, Michael Eaton says that he typically seems to be writing to these guys. They seem to have an income, but there is a difficulty in the relationship they have with some poor people that are coming into the church. And there's this upward mobility. We want to earn more. We want to grow in our income. And yet there are some who aren't earning much, and they're trying to work out, how do we do this? How do we deal with this? I heard a stat on the radio, you can uh, uh, discredit me if I'm wrong, but I heard it last week that officially South Africa is the most unequal society in the world. Is that right? I heard that this week. So we should expect that this passage is really important for us. 
Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Let the poor person rejoice. That's hard to swallow. It's not an easy thing to to read. The person who has little, James is saying, let him boast in his exaltation. Michael Eaton, once again, he talks about the gospel, and he says, this is another proof of multiple proofs, mainly starting in the words of Jesus, that the gospel of Jesus prefers the poor. The gospel of Jesus is wired towards the poor, so much so that even before Jesus arrives, Isaiah 61 says, this is going to be good news to the poor. The gospel is going to be good news to the poor. There is this sense in which if you are poor, the gospel is good for you. The message of the gospel is exactly what your heart needs. Now, you're going to have to wait patiently because you're going to find yourself going, Rog, but what about this and what about that? And I'm going to try to cover all those big questions because it's hard to hear that the gospel is good for the poor because half of us are going, you know what, that doesn't seem fair. You can't just say the gospel's good if it doesn't help them. Well, there is a lot of statistical evidence to say that when the gospel does get entrenched into a community that actually it tends to uplift people and does create jobs and create flourishing and take people off of addictive behaviors and gambling and drugs, et cetera, et cetera. And, and there are statistics around the world where the gospel has taken root in society. Poverty has been alleviated. It's a wonderful thing to see. So the gospel is not good news for the poor just because you can be saved and you can have the presence of God in your life and even if you own nothing, you can still know the love of God. There is a double blessing for people who are poor who happen to get the gospel. The first one is that God comes to empower them with his presence. It is free. All of the best stuff that God offers is absolutely free. You can't earn it, you can't work for it, you don't deserve it. All you do is you receive it by grace. James can say with integrity, and it's a hard thing to say, he can look the poorest of the poor and say, rejoice, the very best stuff that you can imagine is all yours and you don't need to do anything. You don't need to earn it, you don't need to uh, kind of work towards it. It is yours in the gospel. Let the lowly brother rejoice, because in so many ways, God became poor on your behalf, and because of that, he gave us all of his riches in Jesus Christ. So at the very end of the day, even if you were to die of poverty, God forbid, you still have the greatest treasure you could imagine in Jesus Christ. There are lots of disclaimers. I know you want to jump off your seat and say, but surely there's an obligation. Surely, yes, there is. But James isn't going there yet. He's just saying, rejoice. You also don't have all the catchings, all the difficulties of trying to earn more. One of the most difficult things Jesus says about wealth is that it is a massive distraction to the heart. It causes much difficulty to actually experience the kingdom of God. Jesus looks at wealthy people, probably most famously the rich young ruler who comes to him, and and the rich young ruler comes and he says, you know, Jesus, I do everything right. I, I pitch up a church, I get my kids to Sunday school, I read the Bible, I do all the right stuff at all the right times, and Jesus goes, well done. And you kind of think, this is gonna be a happy ending story. And as it seems like the rich young ruler is walking away, Jesus goes, the one thing you lack, you kind of get the feeling like it's, oh, What do I lack, Jesus? 
And he says, go sell everything you have and follow me. What an awkward moment in the Gospels. And it says he walked, he went away sad because he had great wealth. One of the most difficult things about wealth is that it is so incredibly hard to serve God and have lots of it because you often struggle to know the difference, to understand and discern in your heart which one you truly love more. And it gets so complicated. And Jesus has this stark moment where he shows how difficult it is. And he says to the, um, he says in another moment, he says, you know what? It's harder for a camel to, to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, this is probably hyperbole. This is not Jesus trying to say any rich person can't, you know, just like a camel can never get through. Rich people will never get into the kingdom. That's not true. James doesn't ever for one second say that wealth is a bad thing. Just, you can check it. He never says wealth is bad. He never says you can't be wealthy. He just says be careful of how you understand your wealth and what you're doing with your view of money because what happens there in your heart and in your mind can be very dangerous and it makes it very difficult to enjoy the kingdom of God, to live in the kingdom of God. So let me clarify this. God, in James, as we read this, is not asking us to be poor. He's not asking you to become poor. Although some people have read it that way. You think of the monastic vows. Not long after these guys, they would take vows, and they would take vows of chastity, poverty, and obedience because they understood how dangerous the trappings of wealth were. And so these people who were trying to preserve the purity of the gospel would choose poverty. I don't think that's what he's teaching here, but you do realize that there are some people in history who have taken it that, real, uh, that really and said, actually, I'm going to choose poverty. I think all safe to say that James is going, if you're poor, it's okay. Rejoice. Everything most important that you need is free. So he says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Who's ever gone to look at the flowers on the West Coast at the end of December? I mean, September. And you hear all the stories. You should have been here a week ago. It was amazing. And you look over these big open plains filled with dark, dead buds. And you go, no, we missed it. It was just a week earlier. We could have seen all the glorious colors of the West Coast National Park in all its beauty. And a week later, here we are driving in the heat, miserable with kids complaining to look at little dark buds all dotted around the dunes. Who knows the feeling? As fast as they come, they go. And James is looking at wealthy people and saying, you're so caught up in it. You've got a three-decade plan to build your empire and to do all sorts of stuff. In God's eyes, it's going to come and it's going to go, and you're going to be like so many of those wealthy people who sit on their deathbeds and look and go, I wish I'd spent more time with my kids. I wish I had actually prioritized my marriage 
The few who had a faith go, I wish I had actually lived before God. As quickly as it comes, it goes. It's like a flower that, that passes in the heat and the rain and the sun, and it scorches away, and suddenly it's gone. Recently read a book, if you like uh, autobiographies, this is a fascinating one. It's about a guy by the name of Robert Maxwell. Anyone old enough to know who Robert Maxwell was? Yeah, oh, cool. So Robert Maxwell, of course, yes, uh, famous in, in England. He was, um, he was one of the big media moguls of the sort of uh, 70s and 80s and had a real chip on his shoulder that he would be bigger and more important than Rupert Murdoch, you know, the other big Australian um, sort of media mogul. And he just pursued wealth at all costs. And uh, it's a fascinating book. Ultimately, he got into 700 million pounds of debt at the end of his life, and he was found floating in the Mediterranean. Nobody knows exactly how or why he died. Was it a murder? Was it a suicide? Or was it a mistake? Nobody knows. It was this life shrouded in mystery. Nonetheless, um, one of his work colleagues comes up to his apartment. He has been working tirelessly to build an empire, and uh, it says this, I stepped out of the lift. And Maxwell was sitting in a chair on his own. Here was one of the richest men in the world, and yet he seemed completely isolated, completely alone. Amazing. He literally had everything, everything you could imagine. We heard a story recently of somebody who won the lotto. I think it was 163 million rand suddenly just lands on their lap. You could have it all, and yet people come into the middle of your world and you can be alone and desperate. Wealth can be more tragic than poverty, according to the Gospels, according to James and according to Jesus. So often Jesus talks about wealth and he says, be very careful. Now, I'm not trying to say that we should earn less. I don't want you to hear that. What I am trying to say is that we need to monitor our hearts around how we view and understand it. And James writes and he says, let the rich rejoice in his humiliation. What does he mean by that? He means that actually the kingdom of God has no interest in what you own and what you've earned. And actually, whether you are rich or poor, you need to put your shoulders back because you have been adopted into a kingdom because of nothing that you've done. If you're earning uh, very little and you're struggling to make, the, make ends meet, I hope that the church is the place that you can realize that you can do whatever God's called you to do. If you've got the gifts, you don't look up at wealthy people and say, oh, I can't lead them. Oh, I can't love them. Oh, I could never lead a life group filled with wealthy people. If that's the case, the church is doing something wrong. The church is doing something wrong because this is the place where rich and poor need to realize that we have been leveled. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And if you're wealthy, you need to realize that you've got a serious trust in your hands. You've been given something that you need to hold delicately and wisely. The million-dollar question all of us are probably asking is, what's rich? And most of us are saying, I'm not rich. I think, but if we are South African, probably most of us realize we are rich. If we have a salary, we're rich. If we have a car, we're probably rich. 
if we can rent our own home that has a place for us to sleep and a place for us to make our food and maybe even a place to sit and watch some entertainment, we are rich. Some of us here don't have that, and I realize that we're not rich. Today, I want to call you to see that you are rich in God and that we are called as a people to love each other. We are rich, by and large. We are a rich church. And wealth is a challenge to people who want to live in the kingdom. So here's some of the dangers as we hear this talk. The first danger is what I call the sucker stick danger. We're driving home from a little holiday, and one of my daughters takes the sucker stick from her sister. And her sister says, I actually want that back now. And they, the one says, well, no, I'm not giving it back to you. I want to play with it. So then we interject after some bickering. And you know, this is like, this is the high level of argumentation that happens in the Haynes family. Eventually, the parents get involved because this is, you know, this is a big deal. The sucker stick is not in its rightful hands. So we go, listen, it's just a sucker stick. Give it back to your sister. And then guess what happens? Yeah, Dad, it's just a sucker stick. Tell her that I don't have to give it back. It's just a sucker stick. <laughs> oh, my gosh, you're using your, my argument on you. Oh, my goodness. So then we go, yes. But if it's just a sucker stick, then give it back. It's hers after all. And I, I, I think you can take this analogy too far, but the point is, is some of us go, oh, thank you, Roger. The most important thing is the gospel and our wealth. It's just money so I can keep it. It's just money, after all. The most important, valuable thing is the gospel. It's just money. It's just a sucker stick. So what are you fighting about? Now, I'm not getting into any arguments or, or conversations about restitution and where the money should go and all those things. What I'm talking about today is your view on wealth and that temptation to go, thank you for telling me about the gospel. Wealth is it's just a sucker stick. I get to keep it. And I don't have to bring it before God and prayerfully say, God, it's a trust. It may even be a test what I do with what arrives in my bank balance or what doesn't arrive in my bank balance. Because that's the second danger in this talk is that people who don't have much tend to think, you know what? I can't idolize wealth. I'm poor anyway. There's no ways I can idolize wealth. I don't have any of it to idolize. And the danger is that we don't understand that our own hearts can long for something inordinately, even if we don't have it. And we can justify our bitterness or our frustration or our anger or our longing to just have more because we're always looking ahead at somebody who's got more. If you don't have a lot, you can still idolize it. You can still idolize wealth. Your heart can still long for wealth. It can still find itself uh, distracted by wanting to earn more and spending so much extra time at the cost of all kinds of very valuable things in the kingdom because we find ourselves going, I want more. So there's the sucker stick danger. It's just wealth. The other one is thinking, no, well, I'm not, I'm not prone to idolatry. I'd say all of us are prone to idolatry. Idolatry really is the concept that we can make something more ultimate than God himself. And we worship it. We give our time, we give our energy, we give our best of ourselves to making sure we get more of that thing. That's what idolatry is. 
And the last danger, I think, is the danger of guilt. The danger of guilt. And, and I really want to try free you today because what I have not come here to do is to do some fundraising campaign. This is James got us here, not me. This is not trying to, uh, to, to make you feel bad that you're not giving enough. This is to try our best to find God's perspective on this very contended thing called wealth, on money, to help us to find freedom. I do not want us slinking our shoulders, walking out of this place going, I feel terrible. The wealthy feel bad because they, you know, they're not doing enough with their wealth, and the, and the poor people feel bad because they want more of it. The point of today's talk is to saturate ourselves in the goodness of Jesus Christ and his gospel. He doesn't come here to crack a whip and say, you're doing terribly with your wealth. First and foremost, he comes to invite us into a love relationship with him. And what he first and always says to us as disciples is, come follow me. Come follow me and I will transform you. I will make you into a person of love. I will help you with your understanding of wealth. I will help you to rightly understand what wealth is meant to be uh, understood as and how you're meant to deal with your, your finances. Jesus doesn't come, and, and, and Zacchaeus is a beautiful story. You maybe want to go back a few weeks and listen to that talk, but Jesus comes to the wealthiest and the most corrupt, and he says, come, follow me. I want to live with you. I want to be in your home. I want to coach you on how to best understand this thing called money. So please don't feel guilty today. Don't walk out of this place going, I haven't done enough. You may feel like there's some tweaks you need to make. There may be some things you need to pray through. There certainly may need to be some stuff that in the presence of God, we say, Jesus, help me to better get this thing right. But don't for a moment think that you're living under guilt. This week was a tricky week for me because I vacillated between guilt and, and, and joy as I started to work out what James was trying to say and finding myself uh, listening to the words of the accuser saying, you could be giving more, you could be doing better here, you shouldn't think about these things. And suddenly I had to step out of the courtroom because that's what the accuser wants to do. He wants to put you in a courtroom and he wants you to feel you haven't done enough, you're not good enough. If you just this, this, and this, And here's what Jesus does. He steps into the courtroom. He receives the verdict of guilty on your behalf. And he steps you out of the courtroom and he says, come follow me. Let me love you. Let me teach you how to do wealth. You're not doing it out of a guilt conscience. You're doing it because I love you. Just imagine the world. Just for a moment, imagine a world where this was true of every human being. Imagine our wealth wasn't something we longed after, but it was something we, we, we saw as a sacred trust to, to work out, how can I steward it? How can I be generous? How can I make sure my heart doesn't cling to it? There'd be a lot less wars. <laughs> There'd be a lot less fighting. There'd be a lot less families broken in two if wealth wasn't what was driving the human heart. I think imagine even what your own life would look like. Take a moment. Imagine what your life would be like if money wasn't what was motivating so much of how you lived and acted. It's okay to earn more. It's okay to find ways to earn more. So long as we keep the main thing the main thing and we keep asking the questions of our heart while we do it. It's land where he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. That sounds nice. I'd like a crown of life. 
We want the crown of life, of course. You want to finish your life. You want to experience the joy of knowing that you've pleased God. Michael Eaton says it like this. He says, the crown of life depends on how you handle temptation. The rich and the poor are to live for God's promise. To both the needy and the not so needy, God says, blessed is the person who perseveres under trial. Whether you're poor or not so poor, you are under a test. But when you've passed God's test by handling, handling your poverty or your wealth aright, there is a crown of life for you. A crown is something a king or queen gets. A blessing for passing God's test is kingship. The crown is life. When you pass God's test, you receive a fresh assurance that you are reigning with Christ. We all know that feeling, right? When you live by faith, you do something, you're, you're generous by faith, and suddenly there's this sense of, oh, I didn't earn your love, God. I just experienced that deep sense of assurance. He says you receive a fresh enabling, a fresh coronation, and fresh joy. You don't have to wait until heaven to get it. It begins even now. And then in heaven, it's confirmed and multiplied. Love that. It's about steadfastness. The crown of life is to the steadfast. So what does steadfast look like when it comes to managing our relationship with wealth? Let me suggest three quick things. Firstly, I think steadfastness could mean that we are regularly exposing ourselves to the gospel's comforts and discomforts. If you ever think that the gospel is only comfortable to read, then you're missing half the Bible. You see, I think Tim Keller best describes the gospel when he says this. He says, the gospel is, is God's message that you are more sinful than you first thought and you're more loved than you ever dreamt. And you live in that tension a lot of your life. You're going, oh my gosh, I am more sinful than I first thought. I tend to, to want to hold on to money. I tend to want to earn more. I tend to want to gain more. I tend to want to accumulate more. But I'm more loved than I ever dreamt. And, and it's that love that melts my heart to grow a more healthy relationship with my wealth, to be able to manage it in a way that isn't about me. It's about understanding it's a trust. How do you expose yourself to the, to the discomforts of the gospel? You read your Bible. You read your Bible. You keep coming across passages where Jesus, he talks more about um, the money than he does talk about, uh, I think, sin and hell combined. He loves helping us through the areas where our hearts are most vulnerable. So daily read the scriptures prayerfully, honestly, humbly, and you will find you'll be exposed to the comforts and the discomforts of the gospel. Hey, another key thing I think is to fast. Such a simple one, but I don't know when last you fasted. Uh, we, we go through seasons. We try to fast a cup every month, maybe every week. Maybe you just want to every week take off two meals. You just skip breakfast and lunch. And, and you know what you do there? You train yourself to go, I am not a human who gets everything I want. And just because I could eat breakfast right now, I'm not going to. Because I want to coach my heart and my mind to be the kind of heart and the kind of mind that doesn't always get what it thinks it deserves. I'm a person who lives under God's love, and it's him that I need more than anything I could earn or uh, accumulate for myself. So firstly, just expose yourself to, to regular gospel discomfort as much as you can. Secondly, regular relational empathy. Stay steadfast through regular relational empathy with people who are poorer than you and people who are much wealthier than you. You need both. You need not stay in your band of, of, of comfort where you go, you know what, I just find people in the similar band and we all justify our behaviors. 
empathy is not about, as I learned in grade eight, you know, you World War, you get told, you know, you need to imagine what it's like to be in World War I and you're starting to get foot rot and just imagine how difficult that is. You try your best, but you can't imagine what it feels like to be in World War I trenches until you're actually in a trench. You can't imagine what it's like to be poor until you have a friend who is genuinely poor and you have a meal with them and you feel the privilege of sharing this and you realize that what you have is more than what most have. Until you're in someone's home, until you feel the vulnerability of not knowing where the next meal is coming from, you feel it, it's relational. I, I wanna ask the question of our community. A lot of people go, hey, how's our, how's our diversity? How's our social economic diversity going? My answer is, what does your dining room table look like? Because that's the answer. If we want diversity and socioeconomic diversity, then we need to answer the question, what does it look like around our dining room tables when we invite people over? Regular relational empathy, getting into people's lives, not just knowing, not just reading the paper, actually knowing people, names, lives, family, kids, scenarios. And then finally, regular generosity. Regular generosity is the massive coach of the heart that the scriptures teach throughout, Old and New Testament. It's the thing that keeps reminding the heart, you do not live for what you can get, and you keep coaching your heart by learning to give. That Nix and I try to keep two categories of generosity open at all times. One is our regular generosity to the life of our local church. We give it, we try to give at least a tenth of our income, the first fruits of our income every month, and we give it. We don't even think about it except that we say, God, this is yours, and we give it. That's a, that's a gift we give. And, and by the way, our, our regular committed giving to this church a lot of it has actually then got some specified funds that are dedicated to serving the poor and the marginalized in our city and in our church, remembering the poor beyond our community, and a mercy fund to remember those who come across hard times. It's been an amazing gift. We had COVID, and we got to be able to support people who went through some really tricky times. What a treat to be able to go, actually, our giving is helping the poor. That, that's our first one, but we try to also keep another trench, or tranche, should I say, of, of, of savings, where we actually can go, you know what? If we come across someone who's in need, a relationship, not, and, and we live in a world where you're getting asked all the time, my general rule about giving is we give across relational lines. We try to build relationships. There are a billion requests. You just need to walk along the street, and you'll find someone who'll say, I've just run out of petrol. Oh my gosh. How many people run out of petrol in South Africa? It's amazing, especially on Kloof Street. But to get to know people, and you know them well enough, when, uh, 1 John chapter 3 says, if anyone sees a brother in need and there isn't compassion in his heart, how can the love of God actually be in him? He's basically talking about a, a person you know. Is there relationship with the person? Hopefully we've got that kind of relationship and hopefully we've set some funds aside so that we can actually be able to help that person. No one else will know. Even our, Jesus says your left hand shouldn't even know what your right hand's doing. This is not to go look at me. This is to go, God, help this person. Final thought on dealing with our generosity is that sometimes when we hear generosity, we only think money. And you know what happens? is we divide our generosity up into currencies and we play them off against each other. 
And so we go, you know what? I give regularly to the local church, so it's my right to hold on to my time because I give. So I'm not going to do the life group thing because I give. But I'm not going to give of my time and my relationships because that's the real cost. That's the real cost. And so we, we trade currencies up, up against each other because we like to give one thing so we can hold on to another. And some of us go, I, I don't give, but man, I'm part of my life group and I really serve. What I would suggest is that the gospel of Jesus says that he didn't keep one currency back for himself. He gave of his time. His whole life was dedicated towards saving and transforming humanity. He gave of his talents. He gave the very best of himself. He didn't withhold anything. He gave of his treasures. Jesus went to the cross a poor man. He didn't accumulate wealth. He had the power to build an empire greater than Nero, greater than Caesar, greater than any of the pharaohs. Jesus could have done it, but he chose not to. He gave of himself. He chose time, talents, and treasures. And I wonder if sometimes we choose to keep one currency and give another. I'll give my money, but I'll keep my time. I'll, I'll give my friendship, but I'll keep my money. Whatever it may be. I wonder if we could look at Jesus and go, he gave all of himself in equal measure because he knew that that was what it meant to grow into real generous, um, generosity maturity. Does that make sense? I hope it does. We're going to pray and I just want to turn our eyes to Jesus. Maybe the band can come up. I want us feeling light. I want us feeling joyful that this gift of wealth is not something that should take us down, but it probably is one of the moments that keep us the most honest. It is one of those things that comes to us that keeps us humble. There are days where you go, oh my gosh, I actually wish I didn't have to earn because it makes it so much harder to know what to do with this stuff. And then to say, Jesus, help me. And to enlist the help of Jesus as much as we can. Jesus is excited to help. Just remembered last week, if anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously. He's a generous God. He wants to be generous to you. He's not going to withhold anything from you. Most importantly, he wants to give you himself. So today I want to ask you a few questions. Have you received his grace? Are you learning to live in his love? Imagine a world where we were living in the kind of love that Jesus gives us so that we could have the kind of relationship with our wealth that Jesus wants for us. 90% of the world's challenges, I think, would disappear, vaporize in a day, if we could freshly understand God is the true giver. How could you have some people into your home for a meal? Who could you have that could break you out? Maybe some wealthier, some poorer. How can you keep a regular sense of care and friendship? How can your budget better reflect God's heart for the poor? How can your daily routines better reflect Jesus' love for the poor? Let's stand. Jesus, thank you for your amazing grace. Today we've probably spoken more about what we can do, but I do pray that we walk away from today aware of what you've done. It's you who became poor so that we could become rich. It's you who gave of yourself most generously so that we could have life. 
It's you who models this. We are not living in deficit, wondering how to do this. You have shown us perfect generosity. And so we come with your generosity and your love. And we ask you to coach us, to hold our hand, to take us out of the courtroom of guilt and frustration and fear, and to hold your hand and to walk forward as you teach us to love and be generous with our time, our talents, our treasures, with everything you've got to teach us, we open ourselves. Give us wisdom. In Jesus' name.